Happy New Year a couple weeks late, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, the board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Beatney, and with me is Michael Walker, the perpetual New Year baby. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I'm glad to hear it. We're going to be doing our year in review. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the year in review. Is that, isn't that what we do? Big, big... Have you been to any of the previous recordings of this oh, show? No. That's not, as a rule, what we do. Oh. I thought I'd just change it up a bit. Okay. Sorry. Well, we're not doing a Drive Time Sports podcast. We are, in point of fact, doing a board gaming podcast. So we're going to mix things up and talk about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and then head straight on into the year in review of 2023. We have a number of categories. We're going to talk about our game of the year, our personal top tens. It's going to be exciting. Walker decided to wear pants. I'm wearing my t-shirt with the fewest holes in it. Someday I might even shower for such an August event, but we'll It's we'll a shindig. It oh, it's a, it's a gathering. It's a happening. It's a shindig. It's a do. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play Kuntrahora, City of Silver. And, Mark, it's all about the money. That's why I love this game. That's why I find it interesting. We don't have resources in our pocket. Mark, we don't have time to carry around all this wood, <laughs> all this wheat. You got 10 wheat? You don't got 10 wheat in your pocket. They want 10 wheat, you just buy the wheat. <laughs> so it's all, the only resource you track is money. And then there's this interesting fluctuating market that has a lot of upkeep, unfortunately, but is still kind of interesting. So the price of coal and lumber and silver and whatever resources you need is constantly in flux. And when you need it or get it and want to sell it, you have to look over at the market and this is how much money you're going to get. On top of that, you're digging mines, you're building buildings, uh, all sorts of things. Lots going on in Kuntrahora, City of Silver. I had two chief misgivings about Kuntrahora. I found it very, very strange. Uh, one reason why was because I didn't have a good sense about what the market was doing and why. I would contrast this with one of my favorite supply and demand mechanism games, namely Navigador by Matt Gertz. There, you can just explain to people, this is how the market operates, and people know the consequences of their various actions, and they know what prices are going to do in response to what. The way Kutna Aura does it is there are these sliders and these cards, and sometimes you slide the slider over, and that always makes things cheaper, but then the cards move, and the cards sometimes make things cheaper, sometimes make things more expensive. Uh, I wasn't in a position to sit down and track what these various things would do. And so consequently, things felt kind of arbitrary. Prices would go up, prices would go down, someone would do something, and then uh, you suffered this more than anybody else because you were almost entirely dependent on coal for income. And coal only ever went down. That at least yeah. was predictable. By midway through the game, we kind of figured that out. Oh, I don't think it was even midway. I think it was by the second turn. Well, I still didn't really have a good sense about what the market was doing, so you clearly had a better handle on things than I did. The second thing that I found disorienting about Kutnora was that it was a very low-scoring game. It was the kind of game where you devote considerable resources and you save up to do something that might get you two points. And that's fine. I've got nothing against that. There's no rule about <laughs> what an ideal number of points would be. It's just that normally when you see a Euro with a score track that goes around to, uh, to 100, you don't expect final scores to be somewhere in the 30s, and you don't expect it to take several turns to get your first point. And we, we were making jokes about how the, you know, the final scores were going to be below 10. Uh, it did, that did not manifest, 
but it was just a strange experience, both because I didn't have a good sense about what points were worth, and I didn't have a good sense about what were going to happen to goods. I agree with you that the central conceit of the market manipulation is indeed very clever, but again, I wasn't in a position to really enjoy that because I couldn't tell what the market was doing. Now, if I were able to read a summary, uh, if such a thing is possible, some sort of executive summary, ideally something like that would be in the rule book. This is what happens to various market things. If you slide it over, generally speaking, this happens. This is how goods get less expensive and roughly at what rate. It's just a rule of thumb, so I could have some idea. As it is, there's the normal confusion of playing a game for the first time. In, well, confusion is too strong a word. The normal uh, lack of experience with a game. The first baby step parts of the game. Precisely. You're playing suboptimally. You don't really know what's an efficient route through things. But on top of that, I, I felt like I could not fully appreciate the consequences of my actions. And I, I happily play again. I'm just really not in a position to say much of anything about Kutnora by virtue of that. Ideally, I would rather, if you're going to have a clever supply and demand mechanism, for it to be more transparent. Again, like Navigador, uh, this is also true of, for what it's worth, all the brass-derived games, including Age of Industry, my favorite. Like, you have a sense about what's going on. Uh, Nucleum, the same thing. You've got a, a rough supply and demand mechanism. Power Grid. Like, these are all games that have a way to track resources like this that fluctuated in an interesting way, and you know what's happening. Kutnora, I never got a sense of that. Yeah, it doubles down a little bit because everything you buy down to the mines and the buildings uh, have values on that, that manipulate the market. Therefore, it's sort of like the why you'd want to choose some buildings over others. Right. And when you have no idea what it does, then you're just sort of shooting in the dark. Yes. And so the, 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 multi, the multivariate components in order to get this, I assume, sophisticated market analysis. I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I'm not in a position to evaluate. So uh, next time, if we were to play Kutnora again, I am absolutely going to sit down and look at the cards in advance, try to get a sense of how the market works, and then see if I have a better impression of it. It was at least interesting. It wasn't. It, it didn't feel like every other Euro where you mine and build buildings. Uh, the, the the market does serve to differentiate it from that. But as it is, I'm more confused than enthusiastic. I'm happy because it's put out by CGE, and they haven't put out any anything really solid that we've enjoyed lately. So I'm glad that they're sort of back to a nice core Euro game. This is designed by... I'm going to say Andrzej Birstren, uh, Peter Chaslava, and Pavel Yarosh. And like I said, put out by CGE Games. I get to finish my game of Voidfall. Talked about this last week. You know, set up Voidfall, play the first cycle after a rules explanation, and then we were going to reconvene and play the next two cycles after leaving the game set up. And I very much appreciated letting it breathe in this context because we were playing with two gamers that are able to play heavier games, but that's not really their wheelhouse necessarily. Certainly not in terms of the Eurosphere. And it worked really well. Everyone had a great time. People remembered what the iconography did, because again, the system is sufficiently clean, which is a, a minor miracle. And uh, it was also the case that Louis, one of the Louis, had the best first game score I'd ever seen. He cracked 250 points in his first game, which was wild. And every time I play Voidfall, something new shows up. It's despite the fact that you can get a, a, a relatively focused sense of how to thrive, you still see variety, and so it doesn't feel exactly like a 4X, but you get a lot of the flavor and texture. And so, very, very happy to return and conclude to my game of Voidfall, designed by Nigel Buckle and David Tertze, published by Mind Clash Games this year. So we're given a key for K2, the digital edition. This is a Steam key. Have you ever played K2, the board game, Mark? No, I haven't. And this was a key given to us by the publisher. Correct. Um, the The 
company that's making the actual app itself is, is Devon Games. And so I can't really compare it to the board game because I've never played it. But in the digital version, I'm going to assume it's exactly the same. And I can see why I do not think it is a game that we would enjoy. You are sending climbers up a hill and you have a hand of cards and you have to divide the movement up between your climbers because uh, every step needs a certain number and certain steps are going to cause damage to your climbers and you have some cards that heal your climbers. So you will play the cards to move your climbers and when your climbers get hurt, you'll play the cards that heal them. That sounds like dominant strategy to me. You're a clever man, Walker. K2. <laughs> not a positive experience. It was not. Well, how was the digital implementation? Was there a good tutorial? It, it was, was fantastic. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, the, if you have any interest in it, this will will is great. It, it brings you step by step through the game. Uh, it's an actual like 3D render of a of a mountain. So it's like this interesting sort of track that goes up the mountain. Oh, great. It has different game modes. It has all sorts of things, but the the basic <laughs> the uh, actual game itself gameplay yeah. is is fairly rough. Sorry to hear that, Walker. <laughs> Got to play a game called Cover Your Assets. This is a card game by Brent Beck and Jeffrey Beck in Grandpa Beck's Games. This was an opportunity for me to uh, play with strangers, and first occasion they had this game. It's like we haven't played it before. We'd like to play it. It's like, okay, go through the rules quickly. I only got a couple things wrong. It is very much a family weight game. And what it does is it's it's within striking distance of a rummy variant. And there are lots of good rummy variants. But what Cover Your Assets does is it introduces an element of, of take that. In that, if you have a card that matches the set, the most recent set that someone has made, you could play that card to steal the set unless they defend with a card. And then you go back and forth playing cards until someone gives. And in addition to winning the set, you win all the cards that were played to contest that set, whether you're the defender or the attacker. So, in short, it's a fine family weight game in that things happen. You know, there's there's enjoyment to be had about watching the spectacle of people engage in some kind of contest of, of stubbornness over some individual set. And it is possible that by attacking somebody's set, you make it three times the value that it was in the first instance. Oh, it's sort of that gamble, right? I guess you could look at your, ha- right. at your hand and you'd think, you know, I could contest this, but I better make sure that I win. Precisely. And so I, I will say that it is not without decisions to be made. And I found it perfectly tolerable for a single round of play. Now, the game rules, in point of fact, say that you're supposed to play until a set score. And the highest score that we scored after one round through the deck was roughly four-tenths of what that uh, uh, score threshold would be. I would not play again under those conditions. For one round, though, if people wanted to play it, eh, fine. Like, as again, as far as family weight, take that level, card games go, where you play cards to see what happens, it seemed perfectly fine. But it is absolutely not the kind of thing that I would look out for. There's also a, a so-called advanced version in which there are very minor rules wrinkles. I don't know that that would necessarily change my perception about whether or not to play, but then again, I haven't tried the so-called advanced version. So cover your assets, perfectly fine in a family or mixed company context for non-hobbyist gamers uh, and or children, but not exactly the kind of thing that I would ever seek out. We got to play Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. This is designed by Tom Stasiak and put out by Beautiful Disaster Games. And it's a cooperative 
sort of semi-dungeon crawly type game. I would call it an adventure game. Walker might call it a dungeon crawl. We've had this discussion before. We did. So you're, you sort of go through a bunch of towns and locations until your time is up and you're collecting weapons and potions and then your time is up and it's time for the monsters to kill you. Yes. And then you start another game of Assault on General. (laughs) Yes, we played twice in a row and I think it was very illustrative in that uh, the, uh, we, we just by chance ended up fighting the same monsters again. They completely wiped the floor with us the first time. And then the second time we won, barely, which is about as good as you ever do in Doomrock. And what I think this demonstrates, a lot of people are playing Doomrock for the first time. I've, I've been seeing this on the, the board game forums, for example. You know, making assertions that the game is too hard. That is neither a true or false statement. It can be too hard or too easy based on your preferences. But then there are people saying it is impossible to win or the, you know, this, that, and the other. It's like, well, it is, it is conceivable that given uh, a lack of optimization during the adventure phase before the battle, that you end up in an unwinnable battle. That is conceivably true. But to assert that the game is definitionally unwinnable is false. It is absolutely the case that you can learn. It is absolutely the case that you can make better decisions. It is absolutely the case that you can prepare better. You can scout. You can absolutely scout. And that is one of the ways. So there's a lot of really, really small differences between Ultimate Edition and the prior edition of Doomrock. They have streamlined terrain to a remarkable degree. I think they did a great job with that. They've made scouting uh, much more central to the experience. Scouting effects are much more common. Uh, and generally speaking, a lot of the rough edges have been shaved off. And at the same time, there's more optional modules involved. I've been a massive fan of Doomrock ever since I first tried it. But I realize it's not for everybody. Some people get very, very frustrated at, say, the dice allocation. You know, it's like, I, I really wanted to activate the skill, but I didn't roll the, the result that I wanted. It's like, well, sometimes you have to know to take the second best result when it shows up, rather than pos- the possibility of being end up with a wasted die later. But that, of course, some people don't like press your luck slash dice allocation mechanisms. I respect that. The difficulty, though, I love. I love the fact that it is unapologetically brutal. And to his credit, Tom Stasiak, the designer, has published a whole bunch of variants online about way, many, many, many ways to make Doomrock easier. So, about the Ultimate Edition and its publication. So, I, I made allusions to this in the past, but let me go into slightly more detail now. I'm going to be going into a lot more detail uh, imminently in an episode of So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad on our Patreon feed uh, about crypto-fascism more generally. Uh, there was a card in the pre-publication prototype version called the Banner of Kekistan, which was included as a joke that the designer thought was a joke at the expense of far-right movements, specifically neo-Nazis, but that's the thing. The the nature of far-right movements in contemporary culture is to deal in memes, in jokes, in in winks and nods. That's what crypto-fascism is. Whether it's tiki torches, Kekistan, Hawaiian shirts, frogs, hand signals, you name it, right? So they get to pass it off as a joke. When it was pointed out to him that this was, in point of fact, a hate symbol and used by hate groups, he said... I will remove it from the published version. That's why I didn't talk about it at the time when I had access to the pre-publication version. By accident, it got published in the final version. In the official errata of Doomrock, it tells you to take the card out and that it was included by accident. For what it's worth, I completely believe that it was put in by accident. I don't think that makes it entirely okay, but it definitely is a big difference between someone deliberately including it as a wink and a nod versus someone accidentally including it. There's a big difference between that, even though the latter is still not okay. I'll be talking more about Doomrock even in this episode, and uh, I, I I hate the fact that it is published in its current form. I, I'm completely appalled 
and uh, very, very nonplussed. Am I still willing to play it? Yes. Am I going to be able to talk about it with the same degree of enthusiasm in venues like this and elsewhere? Absolutely not. And it's a shame. But it's a, it's a tragic mistake, and one that I hope never, ever gets repeated ever anywhere. And I encourage you, if you are ever in contact with somebody who has a copy of Assault on Doom Rock Ultimate Edition, whether it's yours or anyone else's, encourage them to do what I've done and what other people in the guild have done and burn the card. Granted, it's coded in such a way that it doesn't burn very well, but uh, it's worth the smoke because it needs to be destroyed. That, as, that, that card needs to be destroyed from every copy. So that is Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. Uh, I still adore the gameplay, but unfortunately as a product, it is, shall we say, fraught. Published this year by Beautiful Disaster Games after a successful crowdfunding campaign. I got to try Road Trippin'. When Walker described Road Trippin' to me, I was filled with a sense that could be best described as dread. And uh, that sense more or less persisted throughout the game. I, I had no idea how I was going to be able to succeed at this task. What you're given is you're given a topic, an idea, a couple of words. It's not like a single object. It's usually a couple of words. Like, for example, the, the, the a card that was given as the paradigmatic example was butterfly kisses. Sure enough, three rounds later, I pulled the thing. And what you have to do is express it in a vanity license plate. You can use letters or numbers one to nine, and you get extra points for leaving blank spaces and or using numbers. And I, I felt just... I could get some of the guesses... I, I was there. I, I was participating, right? I, I don't think I was exclusively dead weight. I just oh, it, it, it was it was a thing. It was a scene. It was a, it was a, it was a scene, man. It was tripping. <laughs> exactly. I was tripping roads. I just um, as far as party games go, uh, it was not my preference. Now, would I rather play this than draw? Yes. Between drawing and doing this task, that's fine. But the the, the ability for some people to uh, substitute letters for numbers, that's fine. Like, I get it. A three can be E, a one can be I or L. Like, that, that part I get. That that part's fine. And for what it's worth, uh, I do therefore think that some of the cards are just markedly easier than others. You know, if you have enough space to basically just cut out two or three vowels and sub out two or three more for numbers, you know, four for A, etc., then I think you're doing much better than somebody that doesn't have a topic like that. Uh, anyhow, um... It was all right. I mean, it was definitely an experience. A crowd gathered. Uh, Asimi was there, and he was so enthusiastic that he started tossing guesses, even though he wasn't even playing the game. That is not what we call pro-social behavior. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, he felt compelled. Uh, but ugh, I, I just, it's, it, I don't know what it is. Road tripping's just not for me. I, again, I'd rather do that than draw, but. I would rather, infinitely rather, play any number of the word association games that have been coming out, like any of the reproduction word, word association games or code names. Something that actually talks about the meaning of words rather than your ability to cram some orthographic abomination uh, on, a, on a piece of metal. It's just... I, uh, well, that, I think that might be it. That may be part of my objection because it's purely orthographical. It's not conceptual at all. I'm not saying like, oh, I only like conceptual. No, no, no. I like to play with words. I don't like to play with spelling. Playing with spelling doesn't please me nearly the same way. That and I found it daunting. I loved it. It's good at what it does. It's it's very, very good at what it does, but not for me. That's Road Trippin' by Uncredited. Deal with it, Guilt Free Games. Yeah, Credit your designer. Agreed. Mark, you and I got to play a new game right on the cusp of the end this is vladimir suchi's newest game that he does with delicious games they seem to be putting one together every year this one is called evacuation it's true vladimir suchi does release games like clockwork it's impressive so 
the premise of this is that your world is dying and we've got a new world. So let's go ruin that one too. <laughs> so you're grabbing all your stuff. Checks out. From your old place and you're bringing it to your new place. And you tell your friends to come over to help you move. And so they come and the ships start shipping the stuff over. And so you are, you have a set of goods that are for the uh, old world. They can only be used to buy stuff in the old world. And you have a set of goods for the new world. They can only be used for stuff there. So they have a real premise of keeping those things separate. And uh, it is one of those games that where there's multiple ways to play it. So there's the standard version or the race version. No, the race version is kind of a standard version. There's the race version, which they recommend for your first play, and thus is kind of the standard version. Then there's the points points version, which is kind of sort of a variant. And then there's a couple of modules on top of that that you can use either way. That's right. What I meant by standard, there's the standard game or there's the advanced action game. Oh, right. Well, yeah. On top of that as well. Yeah. And I feel... And so quick on that, I feel as though the, the standard version would be more fun because it felt as though that the advanced card system just opened it up more and made it very uh, random. Yeah, it made it feel rather fluky. There's two ways to do action selection and evacuation. You either just activate a set series of actions in whatever combination you want, or you have these action cards So you can either do the default action or you can play what's on the action card. The action card actions are better than the default board ones. And so on a number of occasions, I had to do, for example, a settle action. And then immediately after doing my settle action with a random card, I then drew a card which was settle, but much, much better. And like, oh, that's great. Okay. And I, I, yeah, I, I would feel that there's a greater degree of control in the other version. I have no opinion about the superiority of the race versus the points version, although I will say I did kind of appreciate, again, how clean the scoring was in the race version. The idea is, is that you're you're desperately trying to improve the production levels of the three resources of the game and in the new world in evacuation. And the moment anyone cracks uh, getting eight or above for each of the three different ones, then you more or less immediately proceed to final scoring, which is what is your worst production level after some penalties? That I really liked. I appreciated that element. And I don't know that I would prefer a points version. And so this is a game that I don't. I haven't played a game in a while that had so much player interaction. And unfortunately, I don't know what you're talking about, Walker. The it was player, like you just, you the, know, we're all managing our own economies. The player interaction had nothing to do with the game itself. Ah, ah, yes. The player interaction came with discussing the rules and what the rules meant, and and what these icons meant, yep. and 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 why does that rule apply here but not here? Yeah. And 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 does this mean I get to do this over here, or does it mean over here? Yeah. Or. Or... I had less of a problem with the uh, old world versus new world problem. My problem was, and when I finally internalized that this is what the game was doing, uh, it, there's a profusion of categories, and sometimes they're redundant. Uh, the, the chief offender for this, and that's when I finally like gave up trying to have the game make sense for me, was you can gain a factory, you can prefabricate a factory, or you can prefabricate a factory for free. I thought I knew what gaining meant. I thought gain meant get it for free, but it turns out there's a new category, prefab for free, when I thought that prefab meant pay for it, but no, it's a separate thing. We we play heavy games all the time. Uh, we're accustomed to dealing with iconography. I had more difficulty trying to square what the game was, what the game of evacuation was communicating to me, certainly than any other Vladimir Suki game I've ever played, and probably more than any other Euro I've played this year. Uh, and again, QV Voidfall. So it was it, it was very strange to have that level of disorientation. 
It's not that the, it's not that evacuation is super complicated or super heavy. I just don't think they did a very good job of making the universe effects uh, transparent and correspond neatly to the icons that they were playing around with. Yes. And that coupled on to playing it for the very first time led to an unpleasant experience, unfortunately. But I definitely want, I've seen its, its popularity around, so I definitely want to get back to it and give it another try. That is Evacuation by now, Vladimir Suki. Now, normally, with a Vladimir Suki game, for me, I'm one and done. That's, generally speaking, my, my attitude with some exceptions. I do think that Evacuation is more interesting, but I have a, a serious problem with it in that it seems to be that it is too dependent on level three techs. Because let me just give you a, for instance, in the most recent game we had, I don't know if this is representative. You have a board of technologies, somewhat randomized, different sets of technology. The level three techs, some of them take the form of do this incredibly difficult thing for free without any of the laborious prerequisites of all your basic actions. Like, And what happened was there was this instance in the game where somebody triggered the end of the game. Alpha Gamer got all his production above eight. At the time, my lowest production was two. And so my score was going into the end game was going to be two. With one action... I got uh, five onto my lowest my lowest production. And a number of people are like, how did that happen? I'm like, uh, well, I triggered a level three tech that says do this thing for free, and I just went to town. Normally, in order to have done that thing, I would have needed a whole bunch of resources, and I would have needed to race up the one track of the game way farther than anyone else had. But no, the tech just lets you do it. And I wasn't a huge fan of that. And then I started to look at the other level three techs and they're all more or less of that, uh, of a piece. It's like, well, normally there are these reasonably comprehensible prerequisites and requirements to do these various things and costs, uh, go and do some incredibly difficult thing for free. Like, great. <laughs> when, when the final score, when the winning score of evacuation hovers somewhere around five or six, being able to do something like that doesn't leave me with a very, very good sense. And I'm not saying it came out of the sky. Like, I worked towards it. I, I built the text in the right order to get there. Uh, I just didn't, it didn't leave me feeling like the end game was particularly deterministic or satisfying. And the other thing, when I did say there was player interaction as a joke, there's almost absolutely none. Yeah. And like you said, everyone has a grid of nine of these texts on their board that you cannot see. They're in like small print. Yep. So unless you're going over there or like reading through the whole pamphlet, you have no idea what the other players are doing. There's hardly anything. They all have their own sections in the old world. There's a little bit of competition in the new world, but eh, more or less there's another space that is almost as good. Sometimes you might have a card. Some might take a card that you wanted. Right. But, you know. I, I will say, though, just in terms of interaction, the competition for uh, happy faces, ever since through the ages, happy faces are all the rage. I understand it, it has its origins in Sid Meier. Uh, but the competition for happy faces was relevant because it's not only a tiebreaker, but it determines turn order. And the way it handles uh, the track, there's one track which kind of represents your focus in terms of, they talk about reprogramming an AI to work in the new computer, whatever. But the tracks are actually kind of cool. I, I liked it. It kind of drives the tempo of how your economy is working and what actions you do determine how far you go along the track. And there you have two tokens and you can split up your movement across the two tokens. I thought that was really neat. Uh, I thought it was well done. It reminded me a little bit, actually, of the competition of the tracks in Pulsar 2049, my favorite Vladimir Suki game. I, I'd be willing to play Evacuation again. I, like I say, I... 
There was a lot of confusion. I, I don't really like how the end game looks, but it does have some clever bits, and it definitely doesn't feel like every other Euro that's out there at this precise moment. And that's something, and that's more than I can say for a lot of Vladimir Sucky new releases. But some issues. That is Evacuation. Delicious games. We got to try Solar Titans. Solar Titans is a deck-building spaceship pew-pew game by Philip G. and Jean Wu. Fulfilled this year from Sunnyside Up Games after crowdfunding. And I, I got this because Huey desperately wanted it and Dewey desperately wanted it. And because I am a stupid man. I tried the solo mode first. And the solo mode actually has components devoted to the solo mode. And uh, the solo mode is... Um, I don't use this word often. It's kind of dumb. It is possible on some ship loadouts to lose the solo mode before you have any choices. Because it, like many deck builders, uh, sorry, I should say, before your choices actually matter. Because like many deck builders, when you buy a card, it goes in your discard pile, so you're only going to see your new cards after your deck reshuffle. It's possible to lose before your deck reshuffles, based on arbitrary results of the deck. Uh, this did not happen during my solo game. I lasted until my fourth turn, <laughs> as it happens. But I did not leave with a very, very positive experience. But nonetheless, we broke it out multiplayer. What did you think of Solar Titans, Walker? I, for, I guess, if you're playing with new people that, that and you don't <laughs> own another deck builder. <laughs> so what you do is you get these blueprints at the beginning of the game. So you design this ship in a five by five grid and everyone has sort of like a, a main base station and then a, and a weapon and some other like sort of control cards. And then you just go around the table blasting each other's weapons. So the other person can't uh, shoot back at you. Well, it's possible that we were playing suboptimally. It's true. But regardless of what you do, damage to the other player's ship really limits their ability to do anything. Now you have a limited number of repair, which is good. So the game will not drag on indefinitely. But whenever you do significant damage, it really kneecaps your ability to do anything. And so we were really, I was glad that, that a chip the third ended it when he did, because we were limping towards the finish line because we were just crippling each other's ships. And consequently, we were not in a position to do much of anything. If we had weapons, it was really difficult to fire them. Uh, we could have damaged the crew compartment, which means you play with a reduced hand size down from five to three, which is redonkulous. So then you're not going to be able to buy anything better to pull yourself out of the hole. And it's just like compared to it. Com I was hoping that the spatial element, the ship design element would add some neat little wrinkle to the fundamental formula of the combative deck building genre, you know, any of the realms games or shards of infinity. But no, if, if anything, it was just a, a led to a more rickety system. And so I would infinitely rather play any of the realms games or shards of infinity over solar Titans. Yeah. And, uh, you had these crew, they had common cards that you could buy. And then there was this, like, such a weird smattering of crew in the main deck. And none, not even a single one came out through the whole game. And That's we, true. And with four players. Anyway, Solar Titans would not recommend. Indeed, no. Lastly, for me, we got to play Tiny Mini Golf. So this small. Is, this is designed by Kamas, Kamas Kaminsky. And put out by Kamas Kaminsky. I think we call that published. I think we call that self-published self usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's sort of like a, a roll and write. It is a roll and write. Yeah. You roll the dice, you design a mini putt golf course that the person to your left is going to have to sort of shoot their way through. So you're trying to make it uh, as hard as possible. There's a small intermission where they can put a couple pieces in to try to make it easier. And then you get your final placement and then you shoot your little round of mini putt and it's charming. We talked about it 
before in Pledge of Indifference and on the show, and we thought it was going to be charming, and it turned out to be charming. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed Tiny Mini Golf. It's, uh, you know, the kind of spatial puzzle I can get behind. And you it's one of those situations where you do your best to make a terrible, obnoxious course, and then your 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 friend ruins it by making it either too easy or finds the way through that you did not anticipate. There was a remarkable amount of creativity and problem solving involved with respect to designing and navigating the courses. I wasn't really expecting that much. And then the amount of, of kind of gambling and push your luck push your and luck, risk yeah. taking with going through the courses. Again, surprising opportunities for either conservatism or taking a different way around and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, I, I was thoroughly impressed with Tiny Mini Golf. It's probably the best print and play I've, I've played since Under Falling Skies, which is really high praise. With higher player counts, I, I might worry about the overall time. Like, I, th- I enjoyed one way to play it. There's a number of ways to resolve or score the courses. We played the cheering mode, where after we've all collectively built our uh, holes, then we watch individuals go through the holes one by one. Uh, that I thought was good at four. I don't know if I'd always be willing to do it that way. After my second, third, fourth, fifth play, I might find that a little bit tiresome. So the first one I think would be best. Yes. Because sometimes people were having trouble with angles and stuff. So maybe just to show people how it worked. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As, as, an, as an illustration, absolutely. Uh, but I. this is one of those instances where the scoring, as it were, is... <laughs> Part of the actual fun and watching people go through it. I would, if if this holds up, if it is, it remains as engaging as it was the first play, this might be almost as good or as good as my other favorite roll and write, Vengeance Roll and Fight by Mighty Boards. So I, I was thoroughly impressed. It's a shame that you have to go and get uh, Dice 3D printed, but there is an app uh, that you can download for free and there's a module that will then make digital versions of all those specialized dice. Dice are fun, though. So, yeah. <laughs> And we would always rather use dice than an app-driven thing. And, but in terms of construction, if you know somebody with a 3D printer who can print out the dice, you're talking about printing out a sheet per player, and that is it, in the in the finest tradition of your p- print-and-play roll and rights. So I'm very, very happy with Tiny Mini Golf. So that's it for the games we played last week. Now we're going to move on to the news and why it doesn't matter. And that's it. That's all the news. Now we're going to move on to our topic this year, which is 2023 Year in Review. We're going to start off with our top 10, leading to our Game of the Year, and then we are going to go to our special categories. I do like the special categories. I do. They're they're, uh, um, among my favorite uh, of of the end of the year. But we're going to start, as I said, with our top 10. We each have a personal top 10, and then we have a Game of the Year. This is partially because we can't count. And also partially because we only want to circle back for the consensus yeah, for one game. We messed up on the first year and we said, hey, this is not a bad <laughs> idea. Oh, sure, sorry, sorry. Sure, no, sure. it was always deliberate. We meant to do we that. We meant to. Shh. Walker. Sorry. <laughs> so sorry. What's your, what is your 10th best game of 2023? Oh, and just to stress, uh, we go into more detail about this with using our Pub Meeple rankings in videos that we released for the, the Patreon feed. You can watch us go through this winnowing process live. We start with 20-ish games, and we winnow them down. Uh, and, but the criterion that we use thus far is publication date. We sometimes fudge things a touch if technically it was published in, in, in some year, but nobody was able to get it until the next. But by and large, we try to keep it to games that were published this year. Uh, so, Walker, what was your number 10 game of 2023? Number 10 game is That Is Not a Hat. Now, I have trouble 
putting up uh, like small light party games versus like a crunchier yes. game for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, no, I'm in the same boat. I'm more willing to do it than you are, but I agree that it is difficult. And so I made an effort to try to get these games onto this list, like games that are innovative, games that do so much with so little. Right. Like that's not a hat, a, a, a basic memory game that is just fantastic, easy to teach. Uh, it seems like nothing's going on until everything is going on and yeah. you have no idea what's happening. And then laughter ensues and f- fun is always had by that is not a hat. Solid pick. I think that is not a hat was uh, in my top 15. It didn't quite make my top 10, but a solid pick. My number 10 is Federation, the worker placement sci-fi game. It would have ranked higher were it not for the fact that I basically have two misgivings. Now, keep in mind, when I say I have misgivings, it's a top 10 game of the year. I thought it was really, really good. Uh, You're basically just moving up tracks, which they're not very tracky tracks, but you're basically just moving up tracks. And number two, uh, I still don't like the way major projects work. It's kind of a weird rough edge that doesn't quite make sense to me. Now, that maybe this is just group thinking about how we play, but whatever. That having been said, it is relatively novel for worker placement, which is great. There's a fair amount of player interaction, which is also great. And there's uh, lots of interesting levers to, levers to pull. So I very much approve of Federation. It's a great game. Yeah, I'll talk about it later. Not surprising. What's number nine? Number nine for me is a game we just reviewed called Arborea. Now, this is a psychedelically colored game that you are uh, sort of Tolkien-type placing workers that slide along tracks. Tolkien, not Tolkien. Tolkien. The longer you keep them on a track, the better the actions become, and there are a ton of different actions. Water slides aplenty, and you slide down. And so it's at the beginning of your turn, you have like these these choices. You're putting on guys or you're moving the tracks. And then you decide if you're going to go down the tracks and you're putting monsters into habitats. Lots of things going on. A very unique sort of end game trigger that is constantly forgotten. <laughs> other than that, that has this fantastic resource system where you generate resources. And if you don't spend them on your turn, you get a, a, a hunk of points. And they are commonly held, yes. Yeah, and then the other players are going to use them. And like you always say, the best way to do it is to generate it, get the points, and then on your next turn, hopefully use those goods. That is Arborea. Arborea probably would have been on my top 10 if I'd played it one or two fewer times. Every time I played it, I liked it a little less. Number nine for me is My Island, the Reiner Knizia legacy tiling game. Uh, The fact that we have already got 18 plays out of it and are willing to get more is testament enough. Do I like it as much as My City? Probably not, partially by virtue of novelty and partly by virtue of the fact that I felt that the escalation in My City was a little bit more organic. My Island was uh, getting a little bit repetitive in earlier games and then suddenly ramped up aggressively over the course of the past six games, shall we say. But games, you know, four-ish to 12-ish were starting to get a little bit rote. But I'm very keen to see what happens next. We still haven't finished our campaign, although we're awfully close. Number nine, My Island by Rainer Knizia. My number eight is Lunar Rush. This is a game where you are shipping goods to the moon and they're getting processed and then you're shipping other goods back. And you're choosing these ships, you know, either a fast ship, medium ship or a slow ship. And they're arriving at different times, but they can carry a different amount of goods. So just that sort of early auction every round deciding what ships to take and there are chances that you could even get two ships because you know there's you know different choices 
love that. Can't wait to get back to it. That was one of the sort of themes of how I chose things because right. we didn't get some of these we reviewed, so we played them a lot. Some of them we only got to play once. So a lot of these choices were what game am I most eager to get back to the table? And Lunar Rush is definitely one of them. Can't wait to play more. This was a review copy. Lunar Rush. My number eight is Daybreak by Matt Leacock and CMYK Games. And it is still too easy. That's a, that's probably my biggest knock against Daybreak. And I just really like how it does tableau building. And I like the fact that every time I play Daybreak, I learn something new. It's got those great little QR codes in every code. And I get to learn about Cloud Whitening. Yeah, I loved it. I played it ton solo. It's on Board Game Arena. Great game. What, what is your number seven, Walker? My number seven is a crowdfunding game called Raising Robots. And it's very uh, wing Spanish where you have your... your putting these robots out into these rows and then you sort of run a program, right? Where you're uh, generating resources, you're putting robots out and then you, you know, come around and you, then you start activating all the robots has a very unique sort of uh, role for the galaxy or race for the galaxy, sort of action selection, this energy is being put out. So either you're going to do the two actions you spent, or if there's some public energy, you can use that. And then you can add battery power on top of that. And then you're hitting these energy thresholds for all these different actions. The, the pictures, of the robots are fantastic. This giant deck of, you know, all these different unique robots, very much looking forward to getting it to the table again and finally showing you, hopefully that yep. would be great. Still haven't played it. Raising robots. Very much like you, Walker, I've decided to embrace the lighter game. In part, I think, I'll be talking more about this later, I don't think 2023 was an especially strong year. This is not to, this is not to neg any of the games on this, uh, on this list, but, you know, when I look back at other years, I, I don't think that it stacks up on the whole in terms of overall releases. And a lot of the games on my list are going to be the lighter the lighter type, because I think there were a lot of really satisfying lighter games on the list, and one of them is Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Waterdeep. I'm just going to own it. I love real-time competitive Connect the Dots, Walker. There I am. I said it. I love it. I love this series. I can't wait for there to be more. I think it's just different enough as an expand alone and the way that it it really blows up the game. It, you know, Not 45-second runs all the time. Sometimes you're in a dungeon for five solid minutes. Some people hate those ones. I love it. It's great. And there are now mini dungeons. Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Waterdeep. Fabulous. Fabulous game. My number six is White Castle. This is another Devier Games on the heels of Red Cathedral. Very much sort of the same sort of feel. Tons of game in a little box. You're trying to clear your tableau. You're, you're uh, uh, populating the palace. You are taking action cards out of the palace, which is going to affect what other people can do. And populating it with new action cards. Uh, you're gardening. You're sending troops out. Lots of things going on. Great little game, The White Castle. We are not going to have much overlap on these lists. My number six is a positional abstract walker. Could it be a positional abstract? It is Lacuna. I adore Lacuna. It is such a pleasant and exciting experience. It's so visual and tactile, and it's got a great simplicity to it. It's got a great sense of space that you typically don't find in positional abstracts. You typically only find in things like tabletop miniatures games. Lacuna is eminently delightful and relentlessly charming. Lacuna is my number six of the year. My number five, we already talked about it today, Kutnahora, the City of Silver. Like we said, games I want to get back to the table. This is figuring out how the market works, uh, making choices to purposely manipulate that market, uh, 
investing in in buildings that actually get you money back as opposed to coal which runs you into a hole and you can never see your way out it goes so deep mark <laughs> so 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 deep i i i can't walker, see okay. walker, the walker, top walker, walker 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 it's okay it's okay, okay. you're safe okay kuchinohora city of silver my number five is Undaunted Battle of Britain. Every time you think that Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson have taken the system as far as uh, a system as far as it can go, they will surprise you. And I, I just really adored what they did with Undaunted here. They turned it into again, you know, somewhat like Lacuna, a little bit more like a tactical minis game. In that, suddenly you care about facing. You've got lots of hexes rather than these big, big squares that are kind of, that are more abstracted as opposed to less. And uh, when in doubt, go with the game that has uh, a, a gorgeous sick man in uniform on the cover. So, Undaunted Battle of Britain is my number five. I had two really fantastic two-player games: uh, Undaunted Battle for Britain and Sky Team. It's that two-player games are so hard to get to the table. It's true. These were, Sky Team is so great. Anyway, I had to just give it a quick shout out. My number four. Uh, I played NAR on Board Game Arena. I knew it was going to be amazing. I got a physical copy as soon as I could. It just improved it by twice as much. The art is fantastic. That tactile feel, the large cards, the super easy teach, the flow of the game, the fact that it's over very quickly, the different mechanisms that are all satisfying. NAR is the whole package. My number four, NAR. I hate NAR. Number four is Envelopes of Cash. If you're going to do a Euro, I've been saying this for years, if you're going to do a Euro, you can make a Euro about anything. So why not make it about something interesting and why not make a statement? And not a statement about how the Hanseatic League made money in the 15th century. That's fine. It's been done. (laughs) Why not make a statement about unpaid student-athletes? Envelopes of Cash is a solid Euro, a solid tableau builder with trade-offs and drafting, and it is also a brilliant satire of a very interesting and important issue. And so I was a big fan of the pre-production version. It's on Board Game Arena now. The production version is very heavy physically. (laughs) Uh, You can read all about how the sheer weight of the game uh, nearly bankrupted the designer and publisher, Uh, but I am a huge fan of Envelopes of Cash. It was a delightful surprise, and it is my number four of the year. My number three is Great Western Trail New Zealand. They've been coming out with all these sort of offshoot games of Great Western Trail. They did Argentina. And then this year they came out with New Zealand, which is sheep. And then they have uh, incorporated sort of a deck building system or double down on it, I guess you could say. So instead of just having a herd of, of livestock, you now are bringing all these different cards into your hand. You'll say, Mike, but that just bloats your deck. It makes it impossible. But no. Mark, but Walker, it just bloats your it deck. It doesn't, it Mark. Impo- you play oh. these cards and you immediately get to to draw again. So it does nothing to bloat your deck. Not only on top of that, halfway through or partial way through, you have another thing you can do. You can shear all your sheep and that gets you more money. So all of these different things to do it is now a refined system. I love Great Western Trail, and this is now New Zealand with Sheep, my number three. Is there, like, a special toggle for, like, adult podcasts, but, like, for Sheep references? Yikes. Moving on. My number three is Zuvatis. I did not expect Zuvatis to be this high up on the list, even though I really love Reiner Knizia games and I really love negotiation games. First of all, when when it was published, I'm like, eh, Quo Vadis, it was a thing. 
And I am shocked by the amount of difference the redesign makes. The special powers give so much more interest, specifically in terms of grist for negotiation. Suddenly the deals, which are still transactional and still largely tactical in nature, but there's a lot more fluidity and a lot more to be negotiated over. And it's just been an aggressive hit with everybody, whether they like negotiation games or not. They've changed the board in good ways. They've changed the value of various things in excellent ways. This is solid redevelopment work from Bytewing Games and Reiner Knizia, and I wasn't expecting to like it nearly as much as I did, although in hindsight, perhaps I ought to have, and it is my number three of the year. Yeah, I almost made the list. Just that much negotiation, I thought, was a little extreme. Yeah, when I say it's, when I say it's a negotiation game for people who don't like negotiation games, the people I'm talking about is you. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it very much. I no, I know, it. I know, yeah. I know. But it but, is not. Yeah, yeah. I felt as though some the fact people, that you enjoyed it all is a testament yeah, to how good it is, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. <laughs> My number two is a game you already talked about. It's Federation. Right at the beginning of your turn, you have a ton of choice. You have all of these different ambassadors and their values, and you look down at what's scoring this turn, and you can you make a choice, Mark. You're going to throw your three down on the left-hand side of the Senate. <laughs> That's going to set the tone. It's one of these games where you can set the tone like that. Right at the beginning, it's like, bam, there's the three. That side's going to win. It's already You know, at- for a man who doesn't like negotiation games, you're certainly talking like someone who reads the, the art of the deal. <laughs> it's already at three. So you've thrown in the gauntlet. You've set the tone for the game. And that kind, that kind of game I love. And so you can use them as ambassadors. You can flip them over to give yourself, you know, extra one-time actions. Uh, lots of things going on. I'm sure we'll be talking about Federation a lot in this coming year. Great production. And I want to... Uh, understand how this, these, these, uh, projects work. The major projects work, yeah. I don't, I don't get it. Neither do I after several games. I know. It, and it clearly bothers me more than it bothers you. My number two is Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester in terms of redevelopments. This barely makes the cut. It's, it's definitely improvement over the original Leonardo da Vinci, uh, published by Architoka, uh, some, well, designed by Architoka several years ago, very early on in worker placement games in the, uh, the, the, the mid aughts. But Codex Lester is the republication version by Dice Tree Games out of Korea, and it's got a slightly more modern sensibility in that now you have a track, which actually works really well. And uh, they've doubled down on the brilliant worker placement slash auction mechanism, which makes turn order really matter, and you have to commit, you have to decide where to send your workers in a very, very tense competitive environment. And I very much love what they've done with it, and I already liked the game to begin with. It is not easy to find, and it's somewhat expensive, but I think it's worth it if you're a little bit sick and tired of a lot of the the same old, same old in terms of worker placement. My number two is Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester. I am going to have to check my video, Mark, and figure out how this didn't make it onto the list. I I, I honestly don't know, because when I'm going through it, it definitely should be on my list. Very much enjoyed our one play of it. Looking forward to playing it more. It is a fantastic Look, I can game. completely respect uh, a desire to leave it off the list because you only got to try it the once. Like, that's legit. I, I, I've i played it more than once, and I've been playing the, the, the original one uh, a lot over the years. So I'm in a different position. What is your personal number one game of the year, Walker? It is Darwin's Journey. So this came out almost right at the very beginning of the year. Uh, there's just lots going on. You get to... Uh, make your own sort of worker placement spots. You get into the spots early. It's cheaper for you, makes it more expensive for everyone else. Not only that, you're doing all this exploration with ships. And so you can sort of emphasize uh, 
your ship movement or your explorer movement or your worker placement movement. You're bringing uh, specimens back to the museum and there's this interesting scoring mechanism going on there. Tons going on in Darwin's journey. Definitely want to play more. My number one. Darwin's journey. It was again, I think somewhere in the top 15 of my list. So, you know, 15 to 11. Uh, it is perhaps the, 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 the first inkling that I wasn't necessarily down for every new iteration of the Italian masters. Very solidly done, but I felt that some of it was, you know, treading waters that we'd seen before, no pun intended. But I can certainly understand why you put it as your personal number one. My personal number one, again, I was surprised it got this high. I knew I loved it, but my personal number one for the year is Nar. I just sat down, looked deep inside myself, and do you know what I saw? Nar. I saw Nar. I saw Nar deep in my soul, I saw Nar in my heart, and now Nar is on my tongue and on my lips. Nar is my personal number one of the year. Everything that Walker said is correct. All is Nar, all is Paku. And with that, we are going to take a brief break before we talk about our game of the year 2023 and pay some bills. And we're back. That was tension. That was perfectly was Yeah. Salivating. Yeah. What? But what's their number one? Walker, what is so very wrong about games? Game of the year 2023. Mind Clash has come back with Voidfall, and we love it. It has this card play. It has technology. It has government uh, bills. It has all sorts of interesting things going on. This tension on what what card to play, and and the fact that it's a random number of turns. You say, what? We're only doing four turns this round. And you look at this giant hand of cards, and you're looking, what four actions do I have to get done? And what order do they have to go in? Fantastic game. And on top of this, spaceships. <laughs> yes. It's the freedom. It's the flexibility. It's the surprising smoothness despite the tremendous universe of possible effects that's there tremendous triumph uh, i am i'm very very pleased with the output thus far of nigel buckle and david Sertze. i think they're a design team to absolutely look out for and i'm looking f- forward to their future output congratulations brilliant game and now we move on to the special categories uh, we begin with something that is a little bit of cold water on the Sunshine and Roses, but I think it's worth talking about, not to dwell on too much, but at least to acknowledge, the worst of the year. Walker, what have you got for the worst of the year? Wild Tailed West, Mark. People oh, yeah, were spouting that... that this is an interesting game and we we're on sort of a polyomino high. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, you get to get to shoot bad guys and you're coming up stars and you're putting out these old West buildings and you're building. It It just felt so flat, had this like odd dice mechanism for randomly getting tiles that you're going to put into your town. Yes. The draft wasn't interesting. And then what you do with the tiles wasn't particularly satisfying. It is the first time I played a polyomino game where I was like, eh, is it over yet? Maybe I don't like polyomino games. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Wild tiled West. So I've got three. Uh, for... We also have three, yes. Oh, okay, great. Uh, the first I'd like to talk about is Yucatan. Oofed. You'd just forgotten about it, hadn't you? Yeah, well, my <laughs> mind had blocked it out. Yeah, it's kind of troops on a map. It's kind of something. Kind of bad. I saw what they're going for. Yeah. And yeah, it's not something I wanted. We did not enjoy Yucatan. On top of the terrible rule book. Just the sort of yeah odd sort of I'm going to get more s- slaves than you will awfulness. It's true. Uh, next up for me is Tiny Epic Crimes. I just talked about this very recently. Ah, uh, you did. Just a very odd game of of sliding cards into fancy windows and 
<laughs> and, and playing Clue, that uh, an odd version of Clue. How's sure. that? Sure. Doesn't sound good. My next one is The Witcher Old World. Now, people swear that if you play with just the right mix of Kickstarter expansions, you get a game. Ooh. I, for one, am not keen to find out. No, neither am I. That was also my number three. It was an unpleasant experience all around. I don't even want to talk about Witcher Old World. <laughs> uh, my last one is Lords of Ragnarok. Oh my, did they playtest this at all? <laughs> and on top of that, what a slog. It was a fascinating experience of taking a game that had its rough edges, Lords of Hellas, that we nonetheless very much enjoy, and solving some of those problems while bringing in a mountain of other problems as well. Fascinating from a design perspective, torturous from a play perspective. Yeah. There you go, sit that on the box. That'll be coming. Yeah. Here's a tagline. Yeah. That'll be coming up later for me. Next up, Mark, we have the best expansions of 2023. To start off, I'm going to add the G.I. Joe, the deck building game, Rise of the Flag campaign. So there's a core of us here. How, that... how much of this is because of the aircraft carrier? Oh, uh, only about 10%. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm surprised. Okay. No, it, 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 it. it there's a core of us here that really love G.I. Joe, the deck building game. What, what he means to say is most of the people we know, except for me. Except for Mark. <laughs> All the people who love having fun playing games. Um, Ooh, shots fired. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, uh, so it just brings you back to the core. You get rid of all the expansions. It brings you back. It gives you that the old sort of legacy type feel, you know, campaign system. Here are some, you know, interesting, fancy new cards. And, and the giant battleship gives you abilities that you get to do. And and it's, it's neat. It has a whole story, a whole storybook that brings you along. Rise of Flag campaign. G.I. Joe deck building game. First one I want to mention is Cosmic Frog Find Muck. This is by Jenna Felly and Divas Weasel Games. Does it make Cosmic Frog perhaps too much? Maybe. But is it more Cosmic Frog? Yes. And so I have no difficulty having it as one of my favorite expansions of the year. Fam Privileges. Just talked about it recently. More fam. Same reasons as Cosmic Frog. More cards. Uh, uh, Long-lasting abilities. One-time abilities. Love fam. Well, it's like the song goes. Fam, I want to have cards forever. Just so. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Don't encourage me. My next is very much a personal bias choice. Uh, Mosaic Wars and Disasters. As far as overpriced uh, new card pack expansions go, <laughs> Mosaic Wars and Disasters is one of the best. Because a little bit of variety in the Great Wonders, more cards in the tech deck, those are great. Some of the other bits, mm, not so much, but it is modular and you can jettison the bits. The bits where it's trying to be more like a Troops on a Map game to to meet the expectations of people who wanted Mosaic to be something other than what it was, you know, that's fine. But that's not the part that I would stick by. Just for the more cards alone, I will give it to Mosaic Wars and Disaster. That was also my number three. More Mosaic is good Mosaic. Next category is the best game. Do, do I get a do I get no. a third expansion? No. This is my favorite expansion of the year. Ooh, sorry, Mark. Yeah. Revive Call of the Abyss. Not only do I adore Revive, but Revive Call of the Abyss does what I want expansions to do. Namely, not have anything ancillary, not anything off to the side. If it's going to have a new mechanism, make it integral to the experience, and it absolutely does. And it subtly tweaks the economy to make it slightly more balanced and cohesive. Not that Revive was seriously imbalanced or problematic, but everything feels much more together after Revive Call of the Abyss. Big, big fan. 
Now we can move on to the next category. Next one is the best game you didn't like. I'm going to start off this time because Walker can't be trusted. Almost Innocent. Solid deduction game, but it breaks my head open. First of all, I'm not a huge fan of deduction games to begin with. And secondly, the combination of, it seems like a petty thing, but it gets me every time, the combination of clockwise and counterclockwise, coupled with the possibility of someone making a minor innocent mistake and sending the game hurtling out into the stratosphere. The very possibility of that being in in the game will bother me. And so consequently, Almost Innocent is very, very well done. It's a very well executed concept of something that I don't really want any part of. And so that's why Almost Innocent is one of the best games I didn't like. It was in my top 15. It was in my pub meeple choices. Did not make the list. Uh, First for me will be a GNC. Great game, just not for me. Hmm. I agree with the latter half of that sentence. I'm not 100% sure. No, I mean, I just don't know. It's it's so weird. (laughs) Next for me is Barcelona. Barcelona was one of the, I think, the paradigmatic example of a very, very recurring theme. Solidly designed, probably well-balanced Euro that leaves me feeling pretty cold. And so is it tightly done with interwoven mechanisms? Yeah, probably. Do I remember much about it? Nah. Happy to move on, and so I'm, I think it belongs. It's a good, it's a good avatar for the sort of unengaging, well done Euro that I don't want to touch again. Up for me will be City of the Great Machine. Great game, just not for me. It was like both sides were just uh, making the game unfun for the other team. Sure. So it's just like, what are we trying to do here? City of the Great Machine, not my cup of tea. Last one for me is Horseless Carriage. If you want to spend four hours trying to get a dollar marginal sale off of your sports car versus someone else's sedan with a weird interlocking series of components that do their job, but not in a very physically satisfying way, then Horseless Carriage is for you. It is very much not the kind of game that Splatter has been making, while at the same time, very much the kind of game Splatter has been making, if that makes any sense. It's just, they have that sort of ruthless margin cutting economic uh, element, but for some reason, it just doesn't have that cleanliness that a lot of the other splatter games have and so i you know respected the design and could completely understand why no one else ever wanted to touch it again myself included also my number three horseless carriage there you go the same reasons what's the next category walker next category is the worst game that you did like for me it's distilled oh it was this interesting game where you you brewed alcohol except it just all fell apart because you know no one was taking their turns at the same time. And why would you? Because it's just a bunch of sort of busy work. And so it had some very interesting things there, but not enough to sort of hold it all together. Distilled. Mine, my first one's Hybris Disordered Cosmos. I look, I love the theme. It had a number of mechanical elements that I thought were really, really well done. The way it handled upgrades was really cool. I really liked about 90 to 95% of it. And then that remaining 5 to 10% just completely blows up in your face and makes it a painful experience. Nonetheless, I have vaguely positive feelings about it for no good reason. That is Hybris Disordered Cosmos. My next one is Oh No Volcano. <laughs> Very silly game. Marbles! At its core, you know, terrible, but, you know, you're climbing up and you're dropping marbles down and people are flying off the mountain and lava's crashing down and you're making these little, little roots. Little hats to, to, little hats protect, to protect yourself. yourself from lava. Yep. But yes, all no volcano. Shouldn't like it, but I did. 
My next one is Skytier Horde. It is one of the most derivative games in terms of combat. I think, no pun included, correctly identified it as being painfully magic-adjacent, as in Magic the Gathering. But nonetheless, I've been looking for years for a solo Magic the Gathering-style combat game without deck construction. And, I mean, even setting aside the without deck construction, just generally speaking, there have not been satisfying versions of this. But Skytier Horde does it exactly the way I want it to, and nonetheless, it has a soft spot in my heart. So, does it do anything new? No. Other than taking established ideas and putting them together such that I can do it solo. Is it any good co-op? No. Is it any good opposed? Absolutely not. But I nonetheless like it as a solo experience, so there you go. My biased pick for worst game I did like includes Skytier Horde. My last... Entry here will be Thunder Road Vendetta. Mm. Great little game. Did what it was supposed to do, but it had like player elimination and, and complete randomness, and but was still fun to play. Thunder Road Vendetta. My last one, again, under the category of ridiculous bias is Napoleon's Conquest. I cannot defend any kind of multiplayer game where you cannot internalize the victory conditions. And if you play quasi-historically, you're basically going to hand the win to somebody else. But nonetheless, it's a grand strategic multiplayer Napoleonic worker placement game. How can you not love... Well, actually, no, there's lots of ways you can not love that. How could I not love that? (laughs) But I cannot defend some of its design commitments at all. But nonetheless, I have a fair degree of enthusiasm for it. So Napoleon's Conquests makes my list. Next category is the biggest disappointments of 2023. Mm, what you got, Walker? I have Castles by the Sea. Marcus oh, sure. was a charming little game where you built sandcastles and you had these little troopers that occupied the sandcastles and there's all sorts of different scoring conditions that all sort of fell apart and didn't quite work the way I wanted it yeah, to. Yeah, it almost worked and it um, had so much promise. Yeah, I remember yeah, feeling that Very charming. Well. Definitely... I think I still want to give it another chance. We only played it once, and there's different modules you can play. So maybe the other one of the other modules will sort of like different sets of cards. So all you know, all the different scoring conditions will be different. Well, maybe that'll change. Make new friends willing to play it, and maybe uh, maybe you'll get a chance. Okay, then. Castles by the Sea. My number one biggest disappointment of the year is uh, Salt and Doomrock Ultimate Edition. When I found out about the publication error and the overall implication, it felt like a gut punch. And people often ask me, you know, particularly Huey, but other people as well, what's coming down the pike? What are you excited about? And frequently the answer I would give was the next Doomrock. And it completely killed my enthusiasm for the publication. And when I finally got it in hand, it was not like, oh, great, let me go in and start. It was like, ah. I still love to play it, but it's still simultaneously, my, by a long shot, my biggest disappointment of 2023. Next up for me is Lords of Ragnarok. You already talked about it. Was very excited to play it on the, you know, the, the, the tales of Lords of Hellas. Yep. And was not even close. Yep. Lords of Ragnarok. It's on my list too. Uh, and lastly for me is a game from Portal Games, so I was very much looking forward to it. It's a game called Imperial Imperial Miners, and man, oh man, was <laughs> it not good. On the heels of our experiences with Game of the Year 2023, I was crushingly disappointed by Septima by Mind Clash Games. The theming, again, was just really well done. The conflict between exposing yourself and trying to save your fellow witches from the mobs. So there's a weird political element and a spatial element of situating where your action pawn was going to be and a risk versus reward. It came out to just be a mechanical, unsatisfying experience. And I was crushingly disappointed by Septima. 
Those are our biggest disappointments. Next up is our biggest pleasant surprises. Ooh, let's be pleasantly surprised, Ooh, Walker. Yes, I like that much better. Mark, Wabash Cannonball. Wabash? Mm, Wabash. Wabash Cannonball. Oh, yeah. Fantastic sort of uh, rail game, uh, stock markety, all of that stuff. Everyone enjoyed it. I'm sure we're going to get back to the table a couple times this year. Oh, yeah. What a great little game. Yeah, I, the only reason why I didn't include it anywhere is because, again, this is highly biased. We don't have to come to terms with this. It's just a straight reprint of a game that was published uh, quite a while ago. So, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I'm looking forward for more Wabash. And more Cube Rails generally. I really like Cube Rails. Uh, for me, it was already on your top ten. That's not a hat. Uh, when, as we, as we frequently say, after the first rules explanation, a number of people at the table said, this isn't a game. And then two turns later, we were like, this is an amazing game. And it is an amazing game. That's not a hat. Completely surprised me. Casper Lap just keeps coming up with new and interesting stuff. Massive fan. Completely blew me away. That's not a hat. Next up for me is Rolling Heights. Not so much that I found it as a surprise. I was surprised that so many people really enjoyed it. You're creating these Lego-like giant glass or concrete buildings. And then at the end of the game, you're crashing down giant monkeys yeah, the, the giant monkey module, yes. The overall game, not necessarily, but giant monkey module, yes. Rolling Heights, John D. Clare. Robotech Reconstruction was one of my uh, biggest surprises of the year because it was trying to do Cloin, the, the counterinsurgency games, a series that I, I loathe utterly, in a more accessible way. And I'm like, how is this going to work? And it works really, really well. And I'm very surprised. And uh, the only two knocks that I have against Robotech Reconstruction really are number one, and that it's set in Robotech, not Macross, which is not the way things should be. And secondly, that it's a little bit hard to parse the board state. Victory conditions are super easy to parse, which is very important. But, you know, the counter's a little small. But hey, it's a small box game. And I, I would rather things be uh, smaller than they ought to be rather than bigger than they ought to be, all things being equal. Very pleasantly surprised by Robotech Reconstruction. I'm surprised by how many of our number threes are the same. Robotech Reconstruction, <laughs> I thought I was going to hate it. Uh, just the production alone. I was like, oh, here we go. Yeah. And it was great. Glad you liked it. And finally for me, this is not going to be on your list, I suspect. Among Cultists. I didn't know that you could do a social deduction game for like 90 minutes and kind of sort of evoke, uh, evoke Among Us. And a lot of the theming elements struck me as really weird, like you can die and not know it yet. But I was very surprised by how it came together after an initial bit of uh, struggle with the rulebook. I was very pleased with Among Cultists, very much looking forward to trying it again. And that is our biggest pleasant surprise. Now the ones that got away, the games that we didn't get to play. And I don't, if I, I don't know if I'm happy to say or or horrified to say that I, I didn't really have any. I played all of the games that I wanted to play, except for Frosthaven. Yeah, uh, Frosthaven is definitely a big one. We just haven't, like, we know it's going to be great. Yes. Like, there's, there's no way it couldn't be, but we just haven't felt the urge. It's so bizarre. <laughs> so here's the number, Mark. Are you ready for the number? What number is that? 110 games from 2023 we played. Yeah. Zero of them being Frosthaven. So... Yeah, so that's going to be one of the things I'm going to try for this coming year is not to play so many new games. Good and, luck with that. And to play... I mean that sincerely. And to play more uh, of these other games more often to it's, get a better feel for it. It's them. a virtuous impulse. Because 110 is ridiculous. It is pretty ridiculous. 
I mean, we had a good year of gaming, though, in we terms did. of being able to play a lot. Uh, my list is slightly longer. I'm not confident that any of these games would crack the top ten, but I'm, I'm interested in, in giving them a try. Uh, one of them is The Barracks Emperors, which is kind of sort of a trick-taking historical game from GMT, so I'm fascinated by that. Uh, another is, and this honestly is mostly perfunctory, and that is Dune Imperium Uprising. People swear it's so much better than Dune Imperium. I'll give it a shot. I'm not enthusiastic, but I'm just saying. Uh, and then Great Western Trail, New Zealand. I still haven't played that. I like Great Western Trail. I'm, I'm generally speaking, pro-fister. That's a strange alliteration. Given yeah, both yeah. start with P. And uh, I've got nothing against sheep. And apparently it's a really good Great Western Trail. I'll happily give it a try. I just haven't had the chance. So here, I, I've been, this is was here from last year, or I don't know if we got to it. So how do you think Guards of Atlantis 2 would measure up to this year's list? Uh, it would still be my game of the year. And that being said, how do you think Revive would input here? Because we had that as a game that we didn't get to play last year, so it has not been on any of our lists. Yeah. Uh, if if it were on this year's list, uh, Revive would be... Um, I don't know if I'd put it... Uh, I, I, it would probably be my number one. Not my game of the year, but it would, it would probably be the top of my list. I agree with that. Yeah, fair enough. All right. So next category is the best game we discovered from the past. So this is just a, ga- a game that we have not played before. Paku Paku. Okay, Paku Paku. Paku Paku, game of the year, game of every year. I was tempted to argue that we should make Paku Paku game of the year. Paku Paku. Antoine Boza, Fat Pandas, real-time dexterity, Paku Paku. It's good. Pack, it's pack, so pack. good. Do you know what else was good? Well, what else was good? Mark Marshmallow Test was really good. It was pretty good, yeah. It was a, a great trick-taking game. Do you know what else was good? Green Team Wins. Green Team Wins was good. Yes. Green Team Wins is... Yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that one. That is absolutely one of the best games of the past. Do you have any others? No, that'll do it. And Rallyman Dirt was also from 2022. And when you got... Brock I thought Rider, you hated Rallyman... I, no, I hated Rally. When we, when I played it years ago, when we replayed Rally Dirt, I didn't mind it at all. Oh, wow. I, rem- I have a very different memory of that experience. Oh, well. Okay. Glad you liked it. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about our most anticipated games of the upcoming year 2024. Ooh, exciting. Ooh. Of course, uh, with passes and a prologue, none of these will be released on time. And so we'll just repeat these uh, for next year. Yeah, exactly. Because all the ones that I anticipated for last year, except for like maybe one, didn't even come out. So maybe these ones will. What you got, Walker? I have Undaunted 2200. Science fiction Undaunted. Well, that's not crowdfunded so that we have a better chance of it coming out on time. Osprey has been pretty good with release dates. Also by Osprey, I have Imperium Horizons. Uh, this is the next iteration of the Civilization deck building game by David Tertze and Nigel Buckle. This was, yeah, the same. You said this last year, too. Was it your most anticipated of last year? No. No, it wasn't. <laughs> is that the one that has the new 19 new factions? Is that Yeah. The, yeah. Did I really? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm having some sort of feud. <laughs> okay. So it didn't come out last year either. No, I guess it didn't. Well, it's got a firmer release date this time. They promise. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm full of crap. <laughs> Thrilled to Mark being instantly wrong about everything. <laughs> I have Dead Cells. Uh, I have not played the video game Dead Cells, but a lot of our group have, and I'm getting sort of hooked on their excitement for Dead Cells coming out. Hmm. I, too, am very much looking forward and hoping that they enjoy it as much as they're excited 
to play it. I'm kind of dreading Dead Cells. I, I'm anticipating a kind of a dud, but we'll oh, see. Oh. I also have ARCs. I also have the new Reiner Knizia game that's going to be coming out called Casadero. Yep. And one that we actually have in hand right now, and that is Sencore, the pride of Mensa Musa. So I've also got uh, Cascadero and Arcs by Reiner Knizia and Cole Worley, respectively. I've got Tiny Laser Heist, definitely under the category of ridiculous personal enthusiasm. I, who knows when that's going to come out? Honestly, if, if I had a vote for a game least likely to come out this year that says it's going to come out this year of this list, I, I think Tiny Laser Heist would be it. And finally, for most anticipated, I have, and again, this is who knows when it's going to come, is Dire Alliance Horror. This is the Blacklist game that was supposed to be released in 2022. We are told it is already printed. There are copies that exist in the wild because a Greek store sold some kind of sort of half by accident they weren't really supposed to. Because Blacklist Games is uh, in the midst of, let's say, reorganization. <laughs> anyway, Dire Alliance Horror was one of the last games worked on by the Sadler Brothers before they kind of left the games industry and co-designed with Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. So I'm, I have no enthusiasm for horror, but the Dire Alliance system seems interesting. Uh, who knows if it's ever going to get to me, but it might. Who knows? And that's our most anticipated of 2024. And now for the last category is games you want to be so, so good, but you know won't be. My list is kind of funny because it's all the ones that were on there last year. <laughs> We've got Slay the Spire. Sure. We have Title Blades 2. And we have Freedom 5, the the Sentinels of the Multiverse board game. Yeah, Freedom 5, the Sentinels of the Multiverse board game is absolutely uh, up there, I it's think. It's never going to come out? Yes, agree. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, who knows when, when and if it'll come out. And it, when it does, it probably won't be any good. Uh, I've got Slay the Spire as well. I've added Mordred by Simon. When Simon gets it right, they get a lot right, but they don't tend to get it right very much. And uh, Acheron's Fall, which is the capital ship combat game in the Infinity Universe. I love the Infinity Universe, and I love me some capital ship battles, but uh, there's no reason to believe it's going to be any good. <laughs> I do have one new one. It's called Biohack, Mythical Creatures as Mad Scientists. Now, is that saying that the mythical creatures become mad scientists? <laughs> Or mad scientists created mythical. See, I'm not. I'm very confused. Let's just go with yes. Okay, Walker, best movie of the year. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Oppenheimer. That is it for 2023. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. We appreciate your having decided to, to give us some of your free time in this year. We hope you continue to do so in the next. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information and a great deal of information about the Swag Extended Universe or Swagoo at SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>